Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, thanks for holding it down last week with uh, Afua. That was it was fascinating to hear you guys talk. Well, first like, a lot about Africa, but then also to hear about like a lot of familiar topics, but from the UK perspective, it's just super interesting. Yeah, no, and she's just awesome. I mean, um, I felt like we could have gone like two hours. Just um, she's such an interesting voice to listen to. Yeah, and so I, I will say, I missed all you world those out there. Man, I needed that trip. Like I saw my mom and my sister for the first time in a year and a half. It's just a crazy thing to say out loud. Like I saw Hannah's family and her sister. Like I met her sister's son when he was a newborn. And now he's like a toddler, like wow. bumping around. You yeah, know, it's like that's awesome. we went to a wedding. I saw a trillion cicadas. You know, it's yeah. like creeping, <laughs> creeping back to normal here uh, on the East Coast. I'm going um, next week. I'll be in New York. Um, nice. And my, my kids have not seen my parents in yeah like a year and a half i mean it's it's insane so i'm super excited about that that's amazing i'm I'm so glad you're doing that um also congrats on a hell of a book rollout thanks you yeah i'm feeling good people are watching i'm wearing a, a nice shirt which is rare uh but it's it's you know thank you world those who who picked it up um is the shirt because you're doing tv uh, yeah you know it's just endless uh you're sitting in this exact same chair doing TV hits and, and book events. Um, but it's been great to talk about the book and, and thanks so much for people who picked it up. If you haven't, you can. Um, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll keep it short. Um, but uh, because I feel like I've been, you know, talking about this book for, for forever, but it's only been a week. Um, Buy the book, people. Fun. Buy the book. Uh, I heard from multiple people uh, who you've never met before that they were reading it uh, last week. So that is fantastic. And I'm excited to read it myself. My Kindle didn't download it for my flight and I almost lost my mind. But, you know, that's a bit of a nerdy problem. I do love reading, you know, the, I mean, I'm not just, this isn't just like our normal, like, you know, uh, give us five stars. But I, I have to say, like, I, I really enjoy reading the Amazon reviews because it's interesting and good reads and these other sites that have reviews because, you know, like you want to, you write a book, you want to know what people think about it, what they take totally. away from it. So um, thanks for everybody who's not only read it, but like shared their thoughts. I read those because like that's that's the feedback you get. When you're on a book tour, it's nice because you meet people and you can talk to them about the book. But otherwise, if you're you're still virtual, um, that's, a, that's the feedback. Yeah. Well, everybody uh, tell your friends about the book and about Pod Save the World because we have a great show today. We are going to cover the latest on the maybe, hopefully, uh, new Israeli government and what that new coalition could mean for U.S.-Israeli relations. Talk about some elections in Nicaragua and Peru, ransomware, autonomous drones. I know one of your favorite topics, yeah, Ben. A bit. massive, massive FBI sting operation that just uh, was announced today that is fascinating. Soccer nationalism and a whole lot more. And then, Ben, you just talked with John Finer, Biden's deputy national security advisor, what did you guys talk about? I imagine uh, you you dug into Biden's upcoming trip over to Europe. Yeah, no, I mean, they've got this massive trip coming up, right? So we covered, you know, what are they trying to achieve? You know, we, we talked about whether or not 
they're in the same place uh, with their allies. So they're well. They're going to the UK, to Belgium, to Geneva. But you know they're doing the G7 summit, the NATO summit, EU, and then Putin, obviously. And so we covered all those. And how does China interact with that? You know, uh, how does democracy interact with that? Um, You know, so it was it was good. And then I tried to, you know, peel back the veil on the the life of the White House a little bit at the end there. Um, So uh, it was good. It was good conversation. I have heard uh, from some sources who will remain unnamed that the logistics are a bit challenging because Boris Johnson decided to put the whole thing in like Cornwall or someplace that's very far from the infrastructure you might uh, otherwise want for a massive summit. But hopefully it all goes well. Yeah. You know, and they've got the royal visit in there. I didn't actually, you know, I didn't press John on the Lilibet. Um, I didn't want him to oh. cause an international incident before uh, yeah. wheels up to the UK. But uh but, you know, they got a Windsor Palace visit in there, too. So a lot, a lot going on. That's very cool. Also, the first trip is just the most exciting. I think our first trip was very similar, like a, yeah. like G20. a UK, NATO, G20. Yeah. It was the same thing, a G20 uh, instead of a G7. But then we had a NATO summit, an EU summit. Then we went to Prague. Then we went to Turkey. Then we went to Iraq. Um, so we had it all. Um, um, we didn't have Putin. We had Medvedev. So it went a little better than Putin hmm. would go. Yeah. Yeah, a little better. Uh, Hannah's sister's boyfriend is from Strasbourg, so I feel like we always connect on that because I think it's really one of the cooler cities we went to. And also, remember Bill Plant, the CBS correspondent? Yeah, yeah, wine expert. Noted wine expert. So Bill Plant, right, yeah, the guy covered like, you know, did like three tours covering Vietnam, right? Just like this cool, like legendary guy. He and his wife would just, I think, do these like bike trips through the Alsace region, which is, (laughs) you know, eastern France, western Germany. And bike from vineyard to vineyard to vineyard. And I think he took a bunch of, you know, the staff out one night with some other reporters and we had this big dinner where he like bought all these bottles of wine and talked us through what it is. And I, I will, I'll never forget the name, uh, the grape Gewürztraminer. Cause oh, that was good. like, that was the one you drink out there. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah, it's, that's, Very good yeah. stuff. Anyway, enough, uh, reminiscing here. So let's start with this new Israeli government because, uh, as of, well, not new yet, Tuesday, June 8th, when we're recording this, there still isn't a new Israeli government, but there's this motley coalition of right-wing, left-wing, centrist parties that all just hate Bibi Netanyahu enough to join forces, but they still need to be voted on in the Israeli parliament before the government becomes official. And the speaker of the Knesset is this big Netanyahu ally, and he's delaying that vote for as long as possible to give Bibi time to just try to fuck it all up, uh, of course. So there may not be a vote until June 14th. In the meantime, Netanyahu is going full Trump on his way out the door. During a speech on Sunday, he said, quote, we are witnessing the greatest election fraud in the history of the country, in my opinion, in the history of any democracy, end quote. He added that he and his party, quote, will vehemently oppose the establishment of this dangerous government of fraud and surrender. And if God forbid it is established, we will bring it down very quickly. I imagine he means politically, but, you know, ominous. And, you know, this rhetoric... I think is quite literally dangerous. Uh, Naftali Bennett, who will likely become the next prime minister of Israel, had to get more security because of threats. A member of a left-wing party had to leave her home because of threats against her and threats against her toddler. Uh, And the head of the Shin Bet, which is the Israeli version of the FBI, basically, issued a public warning about political discourse leading to real-world violence. Uh, Unfortunately, that has not stopped uh, other members of the Likud party and a, a close Netanyahu ally from comparing this new coalition to suicide bombers and terrorists. So, you know, Ben, is like, is, 
excited as I am about the prospect uh, of Israel moving on from Netanyahu, all of this news makes me quite nervous. Nervous about you know the fragility of the political coalition, uh, about all the ways it could get pulled apart. Nervous about the lengths to which like a, a cornered animal like Netanyahu could go to stay in power and not get thrown in prison, right? Because a lot of this is about avoiding prosecution. And then just nervous about actual violence, especially given Israel's history with Yitzhak Rabin uh, and political assassination. So I guess just broad question for you, like how are you feeling about the future of this coalition? And like how seriously do you think people are taking this, this Shin Bet warning? Well, I think there's the Netanyahu story and then there's the coalition story. And the Netanyahu thing, I, yeah, like there are these eerie echoes of, you know, before Yitzhak Rabin's assassination in the aftermath of the Oslo Accords, there was this real incitement, this kind of hate language, you know, the Netanyahu himself, by the way, was a kind of a part of. Oh, yeah. Um, so clearly there's uncomfortable echoes. But I think the other point I want to make here that is that like Netanyahu, like this is who he is. And- like some of us have basically thought this for a long time, and yet he was treated like this kind of you know Churchillian statesman by I know. Uh, I know. the Republican Party in this country and some Democrats, you know, because he he's a well-spoken guy. But like you didn't have to look that far under the hood to see kind of a pretty ugly far-right you know mindset, and and like the Republican Party, he has just moved further and further in that direction, and of course. The logical endpoint of Netanyahu's reign is this kind of Trumpian exit, you know, trying to delegitimize all of his opponents and incite hatred and and and, and spread kind of weird, you know, quasi-conspiracy theories. So I think it should make people recognize that again, as we've said a million times on the show, like criticism of Bibi Netanyahu is warranted and and giving him a pass. Um you know, is giving a pass to the kind of garbage we're seeing now. Now, in terms of this kind of bizarre coalition that encompasses Naftali Bennett, the hardline kind of Jewish nationalist right, Yair Lapid, this kind of more secular centrist, um, Islamist parties, the labor parties in there. Um, so that's mm-hmm. that's good. They're, Barely. Uh, yeah, they're, but they're <laughs> in there. Yeah, they're in Hold there. on by a thread. Um, you know, obviously this is not going to do big things, you know, like they- yeah. They're not going to be able to 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 have some big initiative on on the Palestinians, for instance, if people are wondering about that. And so, not only are you going to have a kind of right wing prime minister out of the gate in Bennett, you're going to have a very fragile coalition because they need to 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 pass things and keep the government together. They they're going to need to kind of be lowest common denominator that can appeal to all these factions. And I think the basic calculation of Bennett and Lapid is. Let's just get BB out. By the way, once he's out, he can face charges for corruption. Um, so he could really be out of Israeli politics mm-hmm. in a way. And that at some point, probably before the mandate for this government expires in a few years, there'll probably be an election. Um, and again, I think while people are right to raise concerns about Bennett, um, I think it's healthy that they just Israel needs to get past Netanyahu. Like they yeah. they can't move on. They're kind of stuck in this crazy situation where he's so polarized the country, there have been four elections. So if they can get through this and knock on wood without violence, um, I, I still think it, it, they're huge. You know, I disagree with Naftali Bennett about it, just about everything, um, but it's still a, a, a step forward because it's a step away from this Netanyahu era. 
Yeah, I'm I'm eager for BB to move to Mar-a-Lago and start a blog. Um, yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. <laughs> there's also a lot of interest in like what the coalition could mean or what this new government could potentially mean for U.S.-Israeli relations. And again, like you know, as you were saying, like Netanyahu is he's a right-wing Republican, right? And he yeah. decided to change Israel's approach to the United States from sort of nonpartisan statesmanlike to being openly hostile to Democrats, in particular Barack Obama, before he then went all in with Trump. And so. Democrats now are starting to talk about the post-Netanyahu era with a lot of optimism and that hope that relations could improve. And I actually think there is some reason to be optimistic here. Like, like you were saying, Ben, you know, Naftali Bennett is extremely right-wing. He, he's been the leader of a settler movement. He's been openly hostile to the idea of a Palestinian state. Like, we're not going to agree with him on a lot of, like, big-ticket foreign policy issues. But the coalition as a whole will include more moderate ministers yeah. – Yair Lapid, who you mentioned, is like the secular sort of center-left guy. He's going to have a lot of influence. He controls a lot of votes. Um, Yair Rosenberg, who's this great journalist uh, at Tablet, he described the new government as roughly like replacing Donald Trump with Liz Cheney. But if Cheney couldn't pass anything without the assent of Bernie Sanders, Nancy Pelosi, yeah. <laughs> Ilhan Omar, and Mitt Romney, and if she would get replaced halfway through by Chuck Schumer, which, you know— Sounds like a horrible system, a recipe <laughs> yeah. for gridlock, right? And like you were saying earlier, like a reminder of how easily this whole thing could could fall apart. But, you know, that sounds better than Bibi, right? And his, and his buddies in the ministries. Yeah, I mean, I, I think on the one hand, I agree with that. You'll have, and also like, you'll probably have a less emboldened, you know, Netanyahu coming here to lobby against the Iran deal to Congress. And, you know, the Iran negotiations may become slightly easier without the kind of wrecking ball of BB trying to, yeah. to enter into American politics. Um, and like you said, even if there are concerns with Bennett, they'll be probably in places like the foreign ministry and the defense ministry, different types of figures. That said, you know, the concerns that have increasingly been expressed, including by us, about the Palestinian circumstance, and whether it's in Gaza or Sheikh Jarrah or, or the West Bank, um, those are still going to be there with Naftali yeah. Bennett. So you don't want to overcorrect where Democrats are like, oh, now that Bibi's gone, we don't even have to think about this anymore. It's all good, you know. No, I mean, the the, the life for the Palestinians will be the same um, the day after Bibi's replaced as it was before. And, and the guy who is likely to be prime minister, you know, shares basically the view that there should be a Palestinian state or, or even equal rights for, for Palestinians. Um, so, you know, like, I think, again, this is a step forward, but like a lot of underlying concerns remain. Yeah. And maybe look, if, if this coalition can hold and it can be seen as actually delivering for the people it serves and not just leading to like constant elections and instability, you could maybe see more Arab participation in these elections, better Arab turnout, which would lead to more representation, further moderate the uh, the coalition as a whole. Again, like I'm just sort of spouting out hopeful um hypothetical scenarios but you know that's why i think look getting past bb we just got to do it yeah it's, yeah, it's time yeah. <laughs> it's exactly. like that's that's my bottom line that's my bottom uh, line. me too me too uh and his stupid annoying son who's like the don jr of israel um he'll be on cameo okay. <laughs> that guy will be on cameo before you know it oh yeah but he won't charge as much as don jr 500 bucks yeah <laughs> i like it's one of those things where it would be fun to troll him and get him to say something really stupid but like i don't want to i don't want to subsidize i don't give that guy any money he sucks. I hate him. Uh, let's talk about Nicaragua. So 
Uh, here's a quote for you, Ben. We are very close to calling this a dictatorship. That is how Elisio Nunez, a Nicaraguan political analyst, described Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega's recent crackdown on opposition candidates. So Ortega is seeking re-election in November. And in recent days, he has basically gone all in on attacking the opposition. He charged one leading opposition candidate with money laundering. He has previously placed several others uh, under house arrest. Uh, he's also taken steps to basically criminalize dissent in the country and make it nearly impossible to run against him because you're not allowed to criticize the government. Ortega has been the president of Nicaragua since 2007. And he's been in and out of government for a lot longer than that. He, you know, This growing political instability in Nicaragua comes as Vice President Kamala Harris is visiting neighboring Guatemala for meetings about how to deal with corruption and violence in the region and how that's leading to migration to the U.S. from these northern triangle countries in Central America. So Ben, you know, like, Super complicated set of problems yeah, for the yeah. Biden administration. I think I just name checked like four countries. There's a lot of history that we don't have time also to, to fully unpack about how the U.S. government, you know, toppled or interfered with governments across Latin America, and including and how, Ortega, you know, including Ortega, yeah, including, <laughs> including Ortega. Yeah. Like, yeah, this this wasn't like long around. ago history. Yeah yeah, 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 it was like the '80s, right? Yeah, and so look, obviously, like the U.S. government screwed up a bunch of governments and places, and that's a factor of the instability today. So I guess my question for you is like one. Given that history, like knowing what we, the U.S. did, the CIA did, do you think the U.S. can or should respond to these moves by Ortega? Like, are we a credible voice here? And then just more broadly, any advice for uh, the vice president's team as she tries to navigate this incredibly difficult uh, issue she was given by the president? Well, I mean, look, I think the first thing is there's clearly this kind of, you know, anti-democratic authoritarian trend globally that you know, it's obviously, I wrote a book about it. We talk about it all the time. And, and, and what's interesting is in Latin America, it, it kind of spans the ideological spectrum, right? Yeah, like left you, and right. You've got Bolsonaro down in Brazil. You, we talked about El Salvador. Um, where yep. you have this kind of, it, it's not really left or right. It's just authoritarian. And then you've got a left-wing yeah. authoritarian increasingly in Ortega. Um, and that's something to worry about. And And I do think that they have to speak to um, democratic values um, and, and try to figure out ways to engage governments, but also kind of civil society actors, people who are being kind of pushed out of discussions. Uh, I think, look, for for Kamala Harris, it's so hard. I was thinking if we'd done this trip a few years ago, you'd meet with all of the Central American governments. She can't really meet with the El Salvador or Nicaraguan presidents right now, given the direction of their politics. And that makes her job that much harder. So what would I advise? I mean, first of all, like set expectations. This is a long-term issue. Like you're, I yeah. totally support what she's doing. I totally support the aid that they've requested for Central America. It will take several years um, to to have that, you know, have an impact. And they should they should be candid about that. Um, but it's worth doing because I think it can have an impact over time. Um, I think they're going to have to figure out ways to get aid directly to people in some cases and, you know, to the maximum extent you can. Sometimes, you know, working through governments is less efficient and more vulnerable to corruption uh, than we're trying to work with organizations that are on the ground trying to address uh, problems that people are facing. Um, I do think that, you know, she was in Guatemala, like, I think acknowledging history is 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 powerful. I think it matters yeah. to people. I remember when when Obama would go down there, and of course we get hit with the apology tour. But when he would just kind of acknowledge this history and speak to it, um, it, it kind of 
lowered the temperature a little bit um, to have a more a conversation about what's happening now. So you're not kind of shadowed by history. Um, we visited, you know, the the grave of Oscar Romero, who had been killed, uh, you know, a, a Catholic priest uh, who'd been killed by um, death squads in El Salvador. And I, that just that gesture, I think, you know, for instance, like helped create a different type of conversation. So uh, I think she can do more of that because Guatemala, we overthrew the government in 1954. So, you know, we, we've kind of done this in a bunch of places in Central yeah. America. And, and, and they, they have a right to say like, hey, you're complaining that things are messed up down here. But like, you know, you did have some of a hand in that. I do think acknowledging the history is important. Um, I think her messaging on, on you know, uh, telling people not to come, um, I think you can really focus more on the, it, it's not that people can't come, they can come through the the asylum process. It's the danger of coming. You know, it's the danger yeah. of these um, coyotes and smuggling networks and, and the fact that, you know, it's not as advertised. Um, and we did some of that messaging um, with Vice President at the time, Biden, uh, in Spanish. The last thing I'd say, Tommy, and this may sound like a hobby horse, but like, this is why you talk to the Cubans. Um, they have connections with the Danny Ortegas of the world. And and mm-hmm. I fear that Trump's kind of return to the the Cold War in the, in the hemisphere is contributing to the kind of radicalization of the left down there, the, you know, the Ortega taking this kind of step. Like the, they keep putting off doing anything on Cuba. They're going to find that a lot of doors are closed that you have to walk through in Cuba. You know, like you can have a better conversation. We did with a guy like Danny Ortega when you're not in this kind of cold war down there. So that I threw out a lot. Um, I'm glad she went. I'm glad she's taken this on. It's we should be sympathetic about how hard it is. And, and those are some ideas for for how to make it a little bit easier. Yeah, you're, you're right that this is like a, a decades long, not generational effort or challenge. Um, You know, also like the don't come quote obviously got picked up and sort of became the headline. But I also think, I I believe I read somewhere that as part of her visit, they opened some center that's designed to walk people through the asylum process, right? So like, she's not saying don't try to get asylum. It's saying like, let's do it through the right channels. Also, Ben, just a random aside. I I was reading this, some article in the New York Times about this like big Bitcoin conference in Miami. And it talked about how they played a video of, of Nayib Bukele, the president of El Salvador, announcing some bill to make Bitcoin like legal in the country. And everyone stood up and cheered for this dude, like probably not knowing that <laughs> yeah. like, you know, a year or so earlier, he had marched uh, uh, the military into parliament to try to force a vote uh, on something he wanted there, like more funding for the military, actually. So, yeah, yeah uh, you know, strange bedfellows here. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's I mean, it is hard enough to solve these problems down there, but with kind of very problematic interlocutors, it gets much harder, you know? And Bukele is like, you know, he's an interesting figure because again, it's, it's just about authoritarianism, you know, and it's kind of veered to the right. But, um, you know, I I think Latin America, you know, we have to be mindful. There's some, you know, of the, the, the reality that like, usually things are better politically speaking, at least in our hemisphere than the rest of the world. But like, as we've talked about in our own country, you know, we're not immune to these uh, strains. And, and that's certainly the case in our, our hemisphere as well. Yeah, agreed. So while Nicaragua is gearing up for this election, Peru just held one over the weekend. 
And the winner will be the country's fifth president in five years. So on Sunday, leftist candidate Pedro Castillo faced off against a right-wing candidate named Keiko Fujimori in a runoff election. Castillo is a total political newcomer. He's a former high school teacher and union activist, and he's representing the Libre Party. And he has called for you know the state to play a larger role in the economy. He's pledged to focus on reducing inequality and poverty. It's sort of like a, a socialist uh, approach to the economic issues. Uh, Keiko Fujimori is the daughter of the currently jailed former Peruvian president, Alberto Fujimori. And she served as first lady after her parents' divorce, which gives me some real uh, Ivanka vibes that I don't love. Fujimori herself has been jailed three times and is currently facing embezzlement and election fraud charges that could put her in prison for more than 30 years. Winning the presidency (laughs) would provide her immunity. And she would also be the first ethnic Japanese woman elected uh, to lead any nation. So that's interesting. This runoff election, it's it's uh, the second round. The first round was in April. Both candidates got less than 20 percent of the votes. So neither is like broadly popular. Peru has just been devastated by the coronavirus. Uh, they have the highest per capita death toll in the world. And uh, I read reports of an estimated 10 percent of the population getting pushed into poverty by the virus. So as of right now, when we're recording, uh, nearly all the votes are in 96 percent. Castillo is up by 0.2 percent. Uh, Fujimori is alleging fraud because, of course, that's what everyone does these days. Uh, international observers say they have not seen any irregularities or fraud. You know, so again, there's like vast ideological differences between these two. Regardless of who wins, neither is going to have a, a legislative majority, so governing will be tough. But you know, Ben, do you have any sense of why Peru has just been cycling through leaders over the past few years? I mean, that five in five years is is a lot. Well, I mean, I think there's so many things that are interesting about this. I mean, first of all, you know, the Castillo and Fujimori are kind of like the the ultimate ids of the left and the right in Peru. Yeah. Uh, and so when you have that kind of pure competition between like the the most kind of left wing person versus the most right wing person, and you see it's basically a 50-50 election. I mean, that says something pretty powerful about how divided this country is. You know, Fujimori, her father, you know, kind of his claim to fame was kind of stamping out uh, and really going after this uh, left-wing insurgent group, The Shining Path, Um, you know, obviously that had been a terrorist threat, but also there were excesses in how he did that. So there's this kind of underlying history there too of of political violence um, um, uh, in Peru. You know, recent years, what they've been rocked by is is largely corruption scandals, um, as we've seen in other Latin American countries um, coming to light and and just destabilizing governments. Um, You know, I think when I look at this, um, you you realize that the the polarization is, is, is very powerful right now in Latin America, but it's, the pendulum swinging a bit to the left, you know? And so we've talked about this a little bit, but if you look at Argentina and if you look at Peru, assuming Castillo wins, which it seems like he's most likely to, if you look at Evo Morales coming back um, mm-hmm. in Bolivia, um, if you look at, you know, uh, Lula um, reemerging and, and poised to potentially take back the presidency in Brazil, like it does feel like, even though this is very closely divided, and there are these kind of deep corruption scandals in a lot of these places. Um, the pendulum is tilting a bit to the left, um, and and the U.S. is going to have to deal with that. And and again, I'm <laughs> broken record, but one way is to the Cubans are usually at the kind of forefront, a vanguard of the Latin American left. If you're not, if you're if you're in full on Trump mode with uh, the Cubans, you know those conversations get harder, those summits get harder. Um, and so I think that the, the, the U.S. is going to have to try to figure out ways to lower the temperature. 
Um, and, and we did that like out of the gate, like to, to get, again, like Obama went to the Assembly of the Americas, like he, 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 you know, Hugo Chavez shook his hand. He's like, fine, I'll shake Hugo Chavez's hand. I'll acknowledge the, you know, the history here. And, 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 and again, that detox this a bit, uh, the U S should not be contributing to ideological polarization in, in the Americas. I think that's very, you know, damaging to our own interests and ultimately destabilizing these places. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Okay, let's turn to a very different issue, which is Myanmar. So... We've talked about this a bunch, but on February 1st, Myanmar's military staged a coup against a democratically elected government, and there has just been this horrific ongoing crackdown ever since. That crackdown has also included attacks on and the detention of a lot of journalists, including most recently a U.S. citizen named Danny Fenster, who is the managing editor of the independent newspaper Frontier Myanmar. So Danny Fenster was detained at the airport on May 24th. He was preparing to fly home to see uh, his family in Michigan. I don't think he'd seen them in like two years because of the pandemic. He's just been in prison ever since. The military has ignored requests by his family and by the State Department to contact him in any way. So they just have no idea what's happening to him. And he's in a, in a prison with a pretty horrifying uh, record from you know, talking to past uh, inmates. So according to Reporters Without Borders, 86 journalists have been arrested in Myanmar since the coup. Journalism has basically been criminalized unless you are, you know, part of state-run media. So this is obviously terrifying for Danny Fenster's family and friends. Uh, if you want to learn more about the case, you can visit bringdannyhome.com. Uh, ben, anything else you think we should talk about here? I'm just trying to raise awareness basically about no, this case. No, I, I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad that we're doing this, um, you know, because I hope, uh, you know, I know Danny Fenster's case is, you know, the, the U.S. embassy is working on that, but international tension is important. And connecting it to this broader point about journalism, like they've they've tried to, you know, basically shut down the internet. They've tried, tried to silence anybody who's just kind of coming forward with the truth of what they're doing in Myanmar. They're trying to turn it into kind of 
North Korea, you know, mm-hmm. not even North Korea light, you know. Um, and it's on the one end that that that's working, you know, in the sense that they're they're they have the levers of power. And I should say that you know, Dan, you mentioned he's in this place called Insane Prison, which is I've know people who've been in there. It's it's um, it's you know, people are usually not treated well there. Um, you would hope that um, uh, he can get out of there soon. Um, but I, I think more broadly, there's this kind of creeping concern, I think, from people I've heard from in the opposition, that while the U.S. and other countries, and I think at the G7, there'll probably be something on Myanmar, uh, are continuing to kind of reject this coup, um, th- there's this, you know, from ASEAN, the Southeast Asian uh, grouping of countries, and, you know, there's this kind of, you know, when maybe we need to talk to the junta. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there has to be an effort, diplomatic effort, not just to kind of punish the the military government, but to to make sure that the rest of the world stands firm against an incredibly extremist government that, by the way, has like no support in Myanmar. This is not like a close call, and that is crashing the economy, like ca- casting people in deep poverty, exacerbating every division. Um, so what I'd like to see is pressure on cases like Danny's and obviously other political prisoners and journalists uh, of all backgrounds there, but also making sure that you know we're not letting you know Myanmar's neighbors off the hook here. Their interests are not served by this. Like this region will be more unstable, less economically vibrant um, if, if this path is the one that they continue to go down. Yeah, I mean, as far as I can tell, the the people who support this coup in Myanmar are like you know sort of mid-level Russian generals and Chinese generals who are making visits yeah. there. And then like Mike Flynn in the far right here in the U.S. Like yeah. Those are people who think this is a good thing, which is really scary. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if this is the template for the American right, like uh, that's not something you want to um, experience. Yeah, it's some dark, dark stuff. Uh, okay, let's talk about ransomware, Ben, because again, like it feels like there's a new ransomware attack every month. We got... Uh, meat manufacturers, hospitals, local governments, a ferry to Martha's Vineyard apparently was was one of them, like you name it. Last month, we talked about this ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline, which supplies fuel to much of the East Coast. Here's a little bit of good news. So the Department of Justice today announced that they were able to trace and seize $2.3 million of the $4.4 million, I think, worth of Bitcoins that were part of the ransom paid out by Colonial Pipeline to this hacking group called DarkSide. Our friend and former colleague, Lisa Monaco, made this announcement. She's the deputy attorney general. Uh, but while DOJ is is busy hunting hackers, Ben, and, and had some success here, President Trump is floating a different approach for dealing with ransomware attacks that I think we should really take seriously and consider. So here's a clip. How do we stop it? I mean, the, the comment well, says, well, the company should take action. More old fashioned form of accounting and things. You know, I have a son who's so good with computers. He's a young person. And I mean, he can make these things sing. And when you put everything on Internet and on all of these machines, you never see a piece of paper. Uh, I really think you have to go back to a different form of of uh, accounting. I well, mean, yeah, there we go. Like pretty soon Trump's going to be like on those ads on Fox where they're telling scaring old people into buying gold, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. I think I think Rand Paul is on those. Have you, have you seen that clip from like the early 90s on the Today Show? Where, where the hosts are like, what is internet? They're like talking to the producer. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Trump's response is basically like, go back to the abacus. Like, I, I don't know. It, it's like is. Barron showing him what the internet is. I mean, um, I, you know, we do, uh, Finer uh, is pretty interesting on this. Like you can, this is going to clearly be a subject of growing concern in the White House, but also I think internationally through NATO and other venues. 
Um, because it's just like we're in a new normal. I mean, Tommy, like watching this, like yeah. this is life in you know the rest of our lives of like this kind of constant um, asymmetric cyber threat. And and Russia clearly doesn't give a shit. Um, and uh, this is kind of part of a you know because I I just don't think that these Russian cyber criminals could operate from within Russian soil without at least a wink um, yeah. from their, their autocratic government. And so this, this cyber tax disinformation campaigns, like this is kind of part of this kind of asymmetric war that we are living in, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I no, guess you know, Trump's solution is to, to buy some gold and put it under the bed. Don't do that. That's not the solution. Um, <laughs> buy gold, print everything out. Go from there. Print out your receipts, I guess, you know. Yeah. Print out your receipts, yeah, from CVS and everywhere else. Uh, speaking of uh, technologies that are sort of causing a new normal here. So there was a United Nations report that caught my attention, which said that a military drone used in Libya's civil war last year may have attacked soldiers fully autonomously. In other words, it may have been programmed to just go up in the sky, and if it sees a target, attack it without any kind of data link between that drone and its operator. So there's no human controlling uh, the thing. This report is, it's a little murky. Uh, the details are not confirmed, but it has kickstarted this broader conversation about AI and weapon systems. So this particular drone is made by a Turkish company. It doesn't fire missiles like a, a Predator or a Reaper drone. Instead, it basically like hangs out over an area until it sees a target, and then it just dive bombs it and explodes a, a three-pound charge when it's close to the target, whatever it is. I watched this just terrifying little promotional video yeah, of the terrifying. drone yeah. <laughs> yeah, made by the manufacturer. So they show how you can use them uh, in packs to swarm targets. So straight-up nightmare fuel, like a just a swarm of drones coming towards you and blowing stuff up. But regardless of what happened in Libya, like this tech is coming. It is understandably uh, quite alarming to human rights groups and anyone who doesn't want to be chased around by like a murder Roomba. So there is an organization called StopKillerRobots.org that is advocating for fully banning these kinds of weapons, which sounds great to me. Mm -hmm. uh, but so far, there's not a lot of momentum behind creating some sort of international treaty to do so. Uh, ben, did this come up at all by the time you were like leaving the White House and, you know, anything you want to say to our autonomous killer robot overlords before it's too late? Yeah, it did come up. I mean, and again, people will add us on this and, uh, you know, rightly so. Um, but when when Obama did put out in 2013, you'll remember kind of we declassified a bunch of information about the drone program, released kind of the, the legal guidelines. We were trying to kind of identify, okay, here's the standards in terms of avoiding civilian casualties. Here are the circumstances in which we'd use drones, which again, I fully respect went beyond what probably most of our listeners would, would want the U.S. to be doing. Uh, and I think there's a lot of truth in that criticism. Um, part of the thinking at that time, though, was there's no rules like about this technology and how it's used. I mean, there are rules about a lot of other kinds of war fighting from, you know, particularly right. like nuclear weapons and, Nukes, and, yeah. and chemical, chemical weapons, weapons and weapons yeah. of mass destruction. And, um, and when you get into not just drones, not just flying robots, but basically artificial intelligence and killing, um, there's just, it's an ungoverned space. Um, and, and we, so we talked about that a lot and tried to begin to at least model, you know, what are norms that could be established and laws that could be put in place you know, that, that you'd want to see other countries embrace. I think the challenge here, right, is that like Russia and China who have some of these technologies are probably not going to be interested in developing a set of norms with us. That though, I think doesn't mean you don't do it. I, I think yeah. still the US and Europe and 
and whatever other country wants to come to the table, like if we're not at least trying to get, uh, not ahead, try to catch up to these technologies, what technologies do you not want to see developed at all? What kind of rules do you want to see govern the development of certain technologies? A lot of these, the R&D in this kind of stuff takes place in, in private sector and U.S. tech companies, right? Like the, mm-hmm. um, so you need to be talking to them um, because you, you just have to start to create some principles that become norms, it could become laws, um, even without the full participation of like the Russians and Chinas of the world. So you have some coherence around these technologies because, you know, 20 years from now, like they're going to be a bunch of killer robots and I don't want them to to become autonomous, you know? I don't either, man. I mean, it also seems kind of analogous to landmines, right? Like landmines aren't chasing you down, but they are an autonomous weapon that just sits there and kills indiscriminately. And yeah. like, we were able to put some rules of the road around that. I mean, I don't know. Hopefully someone's working on this problem because you don't want to watch this video of these things swarming. It is it is not not fun. Not well, cool. imagine the January 6th crowd. Like let's say 10 years from now, like someone can buy one of these things. Like yeah. imagine if like some of those nut jobs you're setting up like guillotines and Mike Pence effigies on the fucking lawn of the Capitol, like could fly right. some killer drone, you know, I mean, yeah. that, that's, you know, that, that, that's real risk. Yeah. And it's not like advanced technology, right? This isn't like a predator drone no. that, you know, it's like, no, you, you, any drone that could hold like a, a camera, you could put some sort of, you know, warhead on it, something explosive and fly yeah. it at someone and just kamikaze the mission. I mean, it's not great. Not great. Um, All right. A couple more. Slightly lighter topics to close out the show. So uh, the U.S. military apologized after U.S. soldiers accidentally stormed an olive oil processing factory in Bulgaria during a training exercise last month. Whoops. Uh, This was part of a training exercise where members of the 173rd Airborne Brigade were practicing how to seize and secure an airfield, and they accidentally wound up in a civilian factory. The owners of the factory, they're actually pretty cool about it, so they don't mind the training (laughs) But they wish they'd had a heads up because their employees were terrified. It seems pretty reasonable. I mean, were they making like a bunch of soup or something and they, they needed some uh, extra? I mean, like I I just don't understand how you like attack an olive oil factory by mistake. Um, yeah. I with think all it was due ad- respect to the U.S. military. Yeah, yeah, due respect. I think it was adjacent to this airfield. But once you got in and you see a bunch of workers like – press and olives. I don't get how they ended up in there for like 20 or 30 minutes. Just maybe get out because it's a training mission anyway. Did they think, I mean, I, I'm so curious from both perspectives, like what are these dudes who like go to work and they're just like crushing olives, making this olive oil? Like what do they think when they see like, you know, the U.S. military kicking in the door? Um, and then what is it? Terrified. You, if you did, did the, maybe did the U.S. military guys like think, well, maybe actually this is part of the drill. Like these guys are, you know, pretending to be whatever their exercise is about, like the, the, the enemies posing as olive oil creators. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. At some, at some point when you see like a, a couple of dudes, like dipping bread into <laughs> yeah. some sort of like delicious sauce, like maybe, you know, oh, olive oil machinery factory. Okay. So maybe there's some dual use. Jordan Waller tells us before we get too far. Look, let us have our I fun. I, I don't think we should even cut this. Cause what I love about this is I want it to Jordan Waller, our producer is saying before we get too far down this road, because she's anticipating the length of the conversation you and I could have about pressing olive oil. So yes. thank you for that correction, Jordan. Uh, thank once you, again, Jordan. proving that uh, you keep this show, uh, on, you are the guardrails on this show. It was an yeah. olive oil machinery factory, which is a little bit more plausible. No, it's a little more plausible. But I'm glad uh, everybody took of- that journey with us because it, yes. it, was, it was fun. I had a blast. Uh, speaking of uh, kind of interesting international stings, so this article popped just before we we started recording too. So 
for years, apparently, criminals have been buying cell phones on the black market that they thought had been like stripped of all the sort of existing software and just outfitted with one secret app that you could use to send encrypted messages. And these phones ended up getting into uh, criminal circles used by gangs, drug traffickers, hitmen, like all the best people, all the folks you want to have encrypted comms. And they so trusted the devices that they didn't even use code in in some cases to disguise their activity. They were just like openly talking about shipping drugs or whatever. Well, that was a bad move because it turns out that the entire encrypted network was run by the FBI in coordination with the Australian police. And over the last three years, law enforcement has hoovered up something like 20 million messages and arrested at least 800 people in over a dozen countries. Um, It sounds like this is the beginning of the arrests and that they had to go public with this news for, I assume, law enforcement reasons, or maybe the, the clock was running out on their, uh, their, you know, them being legally allowed to collect this information. But you have to imagine, Ben, that there's a lot of like angry, nervous criminals around the world right now, uh, sweating this one pretty hard. So credit to the FBI for being clever. Hopefully, uh, they will also stop demanding backdoor access into commercial encryption apps yeah, because yeah. fuck off with that. But the big question for me, Ben, is whether the the Trump organization, maybe Trump, Jared, mm-hmm. Paul Manafort, maybe they got their hands on one of these phones. I, I could see it happening. Seems plausible. Uh, yeah, maybe that that like the the texting between MBS and Jared was on one of these, yes. these guys. I mean, yeah, I mean, like better than WhatsApp, right? Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, it it, it is just like a reminder that law enforcement can like get at these issues without like saying we need to be in everybody's signal you know <laughs> like mm-hmm. um so uh kudos uh you know we, we don't give we don't have that many opportunities to give a shout out to the fbi on the show here like uh this is definitely very cool uh final story so this week ukraine unveiled a new men's national team soccer jersey and the russian government is super pissed off about it why because the jersey includes a map of Ukraine with Crimea on it, included as part of Ukraine. Russia, of course, annexed it, invaded it, Crimea in 2014. Uh, And today in 2021, the Russians, the Chinese, they are going to demand that everyone submit to their worldview uh, and that, that we all say that, okay, yes, the new borders that you guys drew through force or through coercion are the right ones. Uh, the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, we say Kiev now, we learned that during impeachment, tweeted their support for the new design, which uh, will be worn at the UEFA Euro 2020 tournament. Ben, should we buy a round of jerseys in solidarity? What do you think about this design? Yeah, I mean, I just look, I, I, I didn't like it when like, you know, you, you're watching like ESPN or some Disney movie or something and like, the border of China includes like the the nine dash line, like mm-hmm. maritime border of the South China Sea. Like, when have you ever bought anything with the the maritime border on it? Never mind a maritime border that claims like an entire body of water. Nor do I think like Russia should be able to tell the Ukrainians that this territory we annex can no longer be in New Jersey. Like, screw that. I mean, people should like kind of demonstrate through their own choices, uh, like that they don't want to be bullied into like accepting some political, you know, authoritarian, creepy insistence that everybody like acknowledge the legitimacy of their illegitimate actions. So I'm, I'm totally on board with the Ukrainian Jersey. Yeah. It was, it was fun reading the stories because the Russians, like they, they take every slight to just the maximum degree. Like they were, they were comparing the slogan on the Jersey to like Nazi propaganda 
There were members of parliament that were freaking out. Some of them were just calling yeah. the jerseys ugly. Little which, thin you know, skin guys. I mean, come on. L- you know. Little thin skin. I do wonder, I wonder if they'll do something uh, incredibly stupid and uh, dangerous in response. We, we, we shall see, I guess. Well, they'll probably just like hack the Martha's Vineyard Ferry again or something like Maybe they'll hack the Cape Cod Ferry next. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. They'll, they'll uh, just, just continue just to be a pain in the ass, basically. Eastern yeah. Ukraine. Yeah. yeah. Just be a huge pain in the ass. I didn't have time to, to write this up, but did you see the video before we went in, uh, right before we came in here? Uh, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, was out like on the campaign trail and some dude started shaking his hand and then just slapped him in the face as hard Whoa, as he could. No, I didn't see yeah. that. Uh, I, I have no idea yeah. what happened. Um, yeah. I don't, that wouldn't end well. Don't support Secret that. Service. Don't support that. I mean, that's the thing is like, you can be mad at politicians, but let's, uh, let's not go that route. You know? Yeah. Let's not hit anybody yeah. uh, in France, in America or anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, okay. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have Ben's interview with Biden's deputy national security advisor, John Finer, uh, about Biden's upcoming trip to Europe. So stick around for that. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. I am very excited to be joined by the Deputy National Security Advisor to the President of the United States, uh, John Finer, who is a, a very good, very smart, and I'm sure very hardworking person. Um, John, thanks so much for, for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. So I want to you know get into setting up this trip, um, you know, something that I have m- lots of memories of. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things I, I remember is obviously you, you develop essentially, how are you defining success? What are you setting out to do? Obviously, there's all kinds of other things that you'll have to deal with and respond to. But just on this basic question, you know, you've got this upcoming visit to the UK, Belgium, Switzerland, G7 summit, NATO summit, EU, Putin. What what are you trying, how would you define success uh, at the end of this trip? 
Uh, well, so I, I think it's a great question, and I think it's one we've thought about a lot in building the agenda and, uh, and, and thinking through how we're going to communicate. And I'd say it's a few things. Uh, first and foremost, I think the last memory that many people have of the U.S. president on the world stage is one that we would be very happy to remove uh, from their yeah. memory banks and replace uh, with one that we find more consistent, not just with our interests as a country, but but with our values uh, and, and, and with kind of a core uh, second message that we're trying to drive, which is democracy. President Biden talks a lot about democracy, he talks a lot about this moment that we're in as kind of being a contest of, of democracy and autocracy. And he means that as a, a moral contest and a, a contest of, of theories. But really what he also means, I think maybe foremost, is the need to show that democracies can deliver for their own people and, and for the world. And so the first two stops on this trip at the G7, uh, seven large uh, democratic countries gathered in the UK and at NATO uh, and the EU, which will take place in, in Belgium, the, the whole theme of those stops is essentially uh, to prove that uh, the democratic model is still the best model of governance uh, for people on the planet and that substantively there are things that dem democracies can do for their own people and for the planet that autocracies, uh, China, Russia and others, just can't, can't deliver on. So you'll see a lot about global public health uh, responding to the COVID pandemic. You'll see a lot of economic uh, themes. You know, we've talked a lot about the connection between domestic policy and foreign policy, foreign policy that, that actually makes lives better for, or make people's lives better here in the United States. Um, so I think that's going to be the, the, the metric by which we'll judge the success of how all this comes together. So I want to ask you about uh, one piece of that, um, well, more than one, but to start, um, I saw the announcement uh, heading into the G7 about the agreement on a 15% global minimum corporate tax rate. Um, and, and as someone who kind of believes that inequality, income inequality has has fueled in interesting ways, you know, the decline in confidence in democracy and some of the the kind of pivot to nationalism that we've seen, I thought that was a very welcome step. Um, I guess the, the question I have on this is how do you how do you enforce that or how do you implement that? Like, what is the what is the step after the G7 making this agreement to actually trying to achieve, um, uh, you know, an enforceable or, 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 or some kind of universal 15 uh, percent minimum corporate tax rate? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think there have been two announcements in the run up. Uh, to the G7 that really go to this equity uh, theme uh, that you just mentioned that is really a hallmark, I think, of, of how uh, President Biden both views uh, you know, domestic uh, politics in the United States, but also uh, our foreign policy. One is the global minimum tax, which you uh, described, in which the leaders are going to kind of formally bless at the G7 uh, in a few days. Now, the whole purpose of this is, is to try to kind of eradicate what have been a, a series of, of tax havens uh, around the world where companies, including American companies, uh, to be candid about it, can go and, and park their earnings, park their money, and essentially effectively pay a no meaningful uh, tax rate. That robs our country of revenues that, that should be uh, collected here and then spent on our people. It robs other countries uh, of those revenues as well. And so the follow-up on that is going to be to work with, these are seven of the most influential countries uh, in the world, work yeah. with our partners uh, to go around and use diplomacy, which is our kind of main tool of, of getting things done, uh, to push other countries to adopt these tax rates uh, domestically and in their own legislatures and in their own countries. It's not guaranteed, as you yeah. indicate. It's going to take a lot of follow-up. But the second that I want to point to is corruption. The uh, yeah. President Biden put out a what's called a National Security Study Memorandum on Corruption that includes a, a, a bunch of steps that our country is going to take to try to kind of prevent our country from being used as a place uh, for corrupt 
foreign companies and individuals to, to park their money, but also encourages countries around the world uh, to take those steps as well. Again, all of this is going to require follow-up and implementation, but in, in terms of this uh, proving, again, that democracies can sort of do the right thing, have the right model, uh, getting this tax situation right, and getting corruption under control are two of the biggest ways we're going to try to drive that. Yeah, I, I was like very excited by that. Uh, probably about as excited as someone can be about uh, like an anti-corruption. Uh, so you faction. were the one. I was wondering. Uh, yeah, was yeah. I was. Uh, I was. All those clicks were were, were for me. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, like because it, it you increasingly and we've talked about this over the years, but like the the idea that you know the the Putins of the world and the uh, you know other autocratic systems that have kind of oligarch structures where cronies kind of finance authoritarianism. You know they make significant use of of New York and and London and 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 you know the financial system. Uh, how 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 much do you think you guys can begin to get at that problem? Is this is this the kind of thing where this is the beginning of a process where you then test through enforcement how much you can kind of get at the way in which dark money is flowing through our systems? You you've just kind of given yourselves a bunch of tools. So I think there are there is a lot of low hanging fruit in this area steps that we can take that probably should have been taken uh, you know over a number of of years uh, that can that can start to get our arms around uh, the problem at least domestically here in the United States and making it a bit of a harder target. Uh, for people to either uh, launder money or or hide uh, ill-gotten gains, but there is an arms race uh, dimension uh, to this problem. Whereas you know you, you develop solutions, the people who are trying to park their money uh, develop better ways of of hiding it or or new uh, more innovative uh, techniques uh, for concealing it. So this is the kind of thing that we're going to have to uh, stay on top of over a long period of time. And you know you make the point about about autocrats. You know I think one of the ways in which we're going to try to distinguish again uh, kind of democratic model where we're putting out lots of ideas all the time, policies. People can debate them, disagree with them, but the purpose of these policies is, again, to try to make lives better here uh, at home and around the world. Uh, the core goals for most of these uh, autocratic leaders are two things. One, staying in power, which usually is, is the first and, and foremost goal, and you've written about this you know, as eloquently as, as anyone. And the other is to, to profit personally uh, from political office. And, yeah. and so we want to uh, just drive home the point that that is not the purpose of governance. In fact, quite the opposite. And uh, and, and we'll be using these policies to try to make that point. So uh, a related question on this democracy question. Um, you know, it's interesting. You guys have put a big focus on on China um, out of the gate, um, kind of comprehensively, like, you know, coordinated sanctions related to the Uyghurs, um, you know, efforts to kind of secure our supply chains in sensitive areas, um, concerns, you know, the kind of, we're not, we're also present in the Trump years about technology. Um, and I detect obviously like a, an interest in kind of multilateralizing some of these issues where we have uh, concerns with China. Do you, are you guys on the same page with the G7? I mean, it's part of the purpose of this summit, figuring out like whether the US and Europe uh, and the other G7 countries have common positions related to, to how to deal with this kind of very comprehensive set of issues um, related to China, um, you know, to, to try to multilateralize some of the steps that, that you guys have begun at home? So uh, I think you're right to point out that there are a number of dimensions of our approach to China that may not have China in the label uh, policy-wise. Yeah. You know, our, our efforts to rebuild the American uh, economy fundamentally is is geared towards uh, obviously all the ways in which that benefits the American people, but also the way in which that makes America better positioned to have to compete with China 
internationally. Until we get our act together at home, you know, we cannot do that from a position of strength. Obviously, getting the pandemic under control at home is not a, a China play. It is about public health and saving people's yeah. lives. But until we did that, we were not well positioned, again, to, to sort of be out in the world making the case uh, to our partners and allies that, that our uh, future, frankly, is, is, is brighter and our, um, you know, our model is better uh, and that people should align themselves with, with our way of, of looking at things. And in terms of, of whether you know, the G7 is, is fully bought into to our agenda vis-a-vis uh, -vis China or the, the EU, I, I guess I would say a lot, they're a lot closer than they were four and a half months ago. It's easy to, to forget that when we took office, uh, Europe, the European Union, had just completed uh, an investment agreement uh, with China that, that the yeah. Trump administration opposed, that frankly, you know, our administration coming in uh, was, was not particularly excited about. That in, uh, agreement is now on, on life support, in part, uh, we think, because of the outreach that we have done. Mm. We've always seen the, the kind of contest uh, with China as fundamentally well-served by our working together with our partners and allies, not fighting everybody uh, all at once and, and kind of leaving those alliances uh, on the sidelines the way we think, at least, uh, our predecessors handled that, but also the way China has kind of overplayed its hand. When the Europeans made statements uh, against you know, forced labor and some of the activities that were taking place in, in Xinjiang, rather than try to use uh, persuasion and, and kind of diplomacy, uh, the Chinese sort of lashed out at them and alienated them fundamentally. And, and that uh, sort of put uh, China on its back foot, put that investment agreement in, into jeopardy and put us in a, in a better position to try to push forward some of the things that we were working on. You know, this is going to take constant work. There is an appeal uh, to the Chinese market that is, you know, undeniable to a number of, of these countries. And, you know, at the end of the day, this whole uh, contest is not zero sum. There are ways in which we're going to have to work with the Chinese, you know, on climate, even on some of the global uh, health issues uh, that we uh, were talking about earlier. Uh, but at the end of the day, we think we are much more closely aligned with our partners and allies uh, going into all those discussions than we were when we got here. So that's interesting uh, to hear that, that evolution. And I think it's just a huge task of, 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 you know, people assume that the U.S. and Europe are of the same mind on this, but it, it can be hard to, to build consensus. I'm working my way to Putin. I'm going to stop at NATO first. And, and there's this question of the, uh, you know, Americans are seeing more cyber attacks than they have in a long time in the news. And there's kind of a, a growing concern and unease about it. And I'm wondering whether you know, cyber was kind of beginning to be a NATO issue when when I was around with you in the Obama administration. I'm wondering whether you guys um, are going to see the NATO summit as an opportunity to talk about kind of cyber as an issue where the alliance has to get better. Um, uh, are there collective defense approaches that can be taken on cyber? Is Because right now it just feels like the American government and our private sector are trying to figure out how to defend our infrastructure. But, you know, we're in an alliance here. So how are you guys thinking about the cyber issue at NATO? Yeah, so I, I think you're exactly right in the way you've described it. This was sort of an emerging challenge, an emerging uh, threat uh, several years ago when, when you and I uh, last served uh, together in government. And it's moved kind of from the, the outer fringes of, of national security issues that we think about to, to right uh, at the inner core. And I think you'll, you will see in the, the press coverage of, of all of these summits and the trip, as well as on the agenda in each of these summits at the G7, in the uh, EU summit at NATO and in the conversation uh, that we've not yet talked about, but that I know we will uh, with yeah. Vladimir Putin, 
uh, cyber issues uh, front and center on the agenda and more prominently featured in the communications, I think, that come out of uh, these conversations, which I know you know how much work uh, goes into negotiating all of the details and how skittish, frankly, some of our partners and allies can sometimes be about adding new material, new threats, new challenges. I think you're going to see a lot more cyber in those documents than you saw uh, before. And I think the focus that you rightly uh, pointed to on critical infrastructure. You know, when people think of critical infrastructure, they often maybe think of like pipelines and and the electrical grid. We define it actually much more broadly than that. 16 sectors of our economy that we think is basically essential to the functioning and and well-being of our society. And we're going to be making the point to our partners and also to President Putin that these things should be off limits uh, to, to cyber attacks, both by states and by you know, criminals who, who live within these states and are, and are sometimes allowed to operate more freely than they should. Well, I will be reading these communiques, John. Um, and uh, Again, I, you, you mentioned you, you may be the one, but, uh, yeah, yeah, but it's important yeah. to get them out. Man, they were painstaking, um, but they matter. They do matter. They, they send important signals. Um, so, Putin, um, I just want to start, like, ask you a couple questions about this. The first one being like, what was the decision making process around doing this? You know, because I can imagine being in the White House and it's like, a Putin summit's never going to go like well, right? It's not like you're going to march out of there and, and everything's going to be solved. There's there's all kinds of risks. It's a huge event. You've already got a long trip. Um, but I can also see the need like, hey, we got to talk to this guy. Um, why did, what was the, the pros and cons and what tipped this to being something you want President Biden to be, you know, obviously uh, he made the decision, but presumably you guys recommended it. Like what, what tipped the balance to, in, in favor of having the summit? So I, I think agree or disagree with the decision to, to have a summit uh, with President Putin. It is fundamentally consistent with how we have thought about, executed, and talked about the U.S.-Russia relationship uh, from, from the minute we got here. What we have said is that this is not going to be an easy relationship, but it's also a highly consequential relationship, and mostly on the downside if we, frankly, uh, don't get it right and allow things to continue to, to escalate. So from the really the first or second week, I think the first week of the administration, uh, President Biden uh, spoke on the phone with President Putin, which some people thought was you know earlier uh, than than they might have expected. And in that conversation, President Biden was very clear. He said, on the one hand, that we don't seek to escalate with Russia, we don't seek a confrontational relationship uh, with Russia, but that we fully intend to hold Russia accountable for actions they take that are not acceptable. He said he was going to be ordering, asking the intelligence community to do assessments of some of these Russian activities, like their interference in our election, uh, like the poisoning of Alexei uh, Navalny, uh, like the solar winds uh, cyber intrusion, and that once we determined what we thought Russia had done, we would take action. You know, Some number of, of weeks uh, after that, the president called President Putin again and, and told him that we had determined Russian uh, culpability in all of these things and that we would be taking a series of steps. And then we executed on on those steps. The engagement, though, is also an important piece piece of this. Uh, If you just leave this relationship uh, to its own devices, there is a risk constantly of crises uh, that will emerge and Russian actions uh, that will be taken that can, uh, frankly, swallow uh, an entire uh, first term of an administration if we're not careful. And so part of this is about investing uh, some time, some energy into this relationship. Uh, so that we can manage it, because it is highly consequential. These are two countries, uh, you know, that are that have significant capabilities, and e- whether or not they're going to be, uh, you know, close uh, partners and friends, they do need to, um, you know, find a way to have a modus vivendi. 
So, you know, you've obviously got a huge list of issues, right? Navalny, Belarus, solar winds, and other hacking concerns, um, and on and on and on. Where, that's kind of the negative side of the ledger. And then maybe like, you know, you guys did new start extension. Maybe there's some, you know, something you can uh, try to, to, to have constructive come out of this. Um, I mean, what is this balance between using this as a summit to like deliver some tough messages on all these different things um, while trying to put a kind of floor underneath the, the free fall of U.S.-Russian relations, prevent kind of escalation that nobody wants? Um, I mean, how, what, how do you, you know, how do you navigate the, this, this really complicated uh, necessity of being firm on some things, but the kind of, I assume the purpose of the summit is to slow at least escalation on other things? Yeah. So look, the theory that, that, that uh, President Biden has brought to this relationship is that we can be candid uh, with Russia about our differences. You know, we meet with them not uh, uh, in, in spite of our differences, but frankly, uh, because of them, but because we believe that diplomacy is the way to uh, narrow these gaps, address these differences, uh, solve these uh, problems. And so he will be candid uh, with President Putin about uh, areas in, in which we uh, disagree, about their approach uh, in Ukraine, about uh, you know, the, the, the fact that they have allowed their territory uh, to be used by uh, cyber actors in ways that are fundamentally harmful uh, to, to our country and, and to many others, and about the many other areas in which we uh, differ with them. But he will also uh, be candid about the, the possibility for at least a, a less damaging, less mutually damaging uh, relationship if Russia can get off uh, the course uh, that it's on. You know, he has had uh, a number of conversations with President Putin uh, over the years, going back to his uh, time as vice president, but this is fundamentally not personal. I mean, this is about our interests and theirs. And there is not a ton of overlap between our interests and theirs, but I think it is in our mutual interest not to have a, an escalatory relationship, you know, that draws us uh, closer to, to kind of conflict in a number of areas. And so uh, you're right. It is about putting a floor underneath a declining relationship, guardrails, uh, whatever metaphor uh, yeah. you, you want to yeah. choose. But yeah. it is going to be different from the other meetings in that you are not going to see us come out and say, we have agreed to the following, you know, 10 steps uh, going forward or, or um, you know, ways in which we see the world uh, the same. We're not under the, uh, the illusion that, that that is likely to happen, but we think it's important uh, to have the conversation regardless. So or, I remember we used to split it up where, you know, the deputy would go sometimes, but then NSA would go sometimes. Are, are you are you the guy who has to stay home and run the operation at home or is everybody going on this trip? What's, what's John Feiner going to be doing for the next? I will be minding the store, uh, which, um, you know, pluses and minuses, but I think when... Uh, when everybody is is out of town, you know, it'll be a, it'll be a different sort of feeling, different sort of feeling in the White House, maybe some time to actually do some uh, some work that, that, that always falls by the wayside uh, because of the urgent business when the president is here. So, yeah, I'll be staying behind. My, my boss, Jake Sullivan, will be traveling uh, with the president along with a, a big uh, and and expert team. The disparity in offices was glaring to me. I mean, I, I, I at least think that, you know, people should know that John's office is it's pretty small compared to, to Jake Sullivan's. I mean, maybe you can move in there for for like uh, ten days or so. And I didn't even ask you to. I didn't even ask you to say this, but yeah. I appreciate <laughs> I, your, your making this it. point yeah. on 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 my behalf. And if you could maybe email Jake to to follow up and and underscore that, I'd appreciate I, it. Well, he's a busy guy. But I mean, have you been in? I mean, I just want to give people a sense of how hard. Like, how many deputy committee? I mean, I, I don't know if this is a state secret, but how many of those deputies committee meetings are you doing a day? I, I think we're average. probably having somewhere between six and eight a week. 
something along those lines. Six. Oh, that's that's okay. That's a that's a reasonable pace, right? More than most of the other deputies would like, I think, in in most cases. But you know, a lot to do. Always, they always say that. But I mean, so your day. I just want to give people a sense for, like, you know, you, you do the, you know, you're in the the PDB, the morning meeting with the president. You got these deputies meetings. Um, you're probably doing meetings with, you know, NSC directorates on all these different issues. I mean, what um, is any what surprised you about? I mean, you used to work outside the office of the deputy national supervisor when it was Tony Blinken. But like, is is something about your time or this gig other than the fact that you started it in the middle of a pandemic? surprised you in just the pace of the day? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I think the most surprising, and I had seen the job up close, as you, as you indicate. Yeah. I had worked uh, for, for Tony Blinken, now our Secretary of State, uh, when he had uh, the job I had. So I think I had some sense of, of the demands. Although I do think it is, frankly, it's just different in, in a role in which rather than, than being in a meeting where you might uh, speak you know, two or three times, yeah. three or four yeah. times, make yeah. your points and get out of there, yeah. Uh, when you have to sit at the head of the table and, and manage the entire conversation, you just have to be on uh, for more of the day. Yeah. This is, uh, you know, requires a little bit more coffee. Uh, but, yes. but um, you know, I am blessed at this point to have extraordinarily talented uh, colleagues, both at the NSC, our kind of experts in, in the different areas who, who help us prepare for all these topics, and also in the interagency, the other deputies who are in this, uh, yeah. this deputies uh, committee that, that you mentioned uh, really are people who, who you know, are friends of yours, uh, many of them friends yeah. of, of mine as well, and people who are deeply experienced and are in this uh, both for the right reasons and, and bring uh, creativity and, and expertise in a way that makes my life certainly infinitely easier than it would otherwise uh, be. Well, that's good to hear. I hope you get some more folks, you know, through that confirmation process and filled out around that table. Thanks so much, John, for joining us. Um, uh, remember to, to enjoy yourself as you're trying to make the world a better place. Thank you, and thanks again for, uh, for having me on. Thanks again to John Finer. Great to be back, Ben. Congrats again on the book rollout. Uh, it's fantastic stuff, man. Keep moving them. Yeah, no, keep moving. And, are you uh, still beating, are you beating O'Reilly? Who, who well, are we beating the, these the days? The list comes out the day that this podcast comes out, so we will find out um, oh, whether really? we've dethroned Bill O'Reilly, um, who's now going to have the extra advantage of going on a speaking tour with Donald Trump, right? So I learned need, that yesterday. If you needed any more incentive, like Bill O'Reilly, best-selling author of the Killing series, you know, currently at the top of these lists, is now, now going to get further juiced by, you know, his his co-partner, you know, Donald Trump. Um, so anyway, <sighs> Bill O'Reilly more, more sucks. Inc- He's a creepy dude. I have to say, I kind of think we were better off with him over Tucker Carlson, and I never thought I would say that. I hate it. Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, it was the rampant sexual harassment that brought the guy down. Um, he was basically just kind of a like a the loudmouth guy from the Long Island Railroad, like ranting about his grievances on the train yeah. after having a couple of tall boys. Um, <laughs> but he wasn't as like insidiously dark white supremacist as uh, yeah, quite the, as much the as incitement Tucker. like yeah. coming out yeah. of you know Tucker's douchey preppy mouth every week is just yeah. some, something new, something new. Anyway, well. We got that to deal with, too. So good luck with the uh, the bestseller list, and we'll talk to you guys next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. Hold up. 
The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.